Though today's guest is best known as the award-winning author of science fiction classics such as The Postman and the Uplift series, as well as the prescient nonfiction work The Transparent Society, he is also a much sought-after business and government consultant and commentator on a range of topics including science, space exploration, security, privacy, and emerging technology. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, I sat down with author and scientist David Brin to unpack the topic of the ethical development of artificial intelligence. He shared his opinions on the role of built-in laws or codes of ethics, how to potentially incentivize AI behavior, and how reciprocal accountability might be the key to ensuring safe AI development. Well, David, it is great to uh, to see you once again and to be talking with you, and, and I'm looking forward to today's discussion. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence, and uh, of course, everybody's talking about artificial intelligence these days, but I, I think really we're going to try to unpack maybe the, the proper disposition that people should have when they think about AI development, how we should conceive of AI, and then and, and really kind of unpack some of the ramifications there. So thank you so much for joining me today. Of course, um, anything. Uh, of course, at this point, you don't even know if I'm uh, real. <laughs> well, I do, or at least I think I do, because I can see you on video. But uh, but you know, then again, uh, given uh, the deep fakes and all the you know photography and videos and stuff, I mean, who knows these days? But well, in my um, in my first nonfiction book, which mm-hmm. still sells because <laughs> it's, there's not a single chapter that's not relevant now, mm-hmm. uh, the Transparent Society from 1997. Mm-hmm. There's a chapter called "The End of Photography as Proof of Anything at All." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I recently reposted that chapter alone online to show that you know there's nothing about it that's <laughs> that's gone irrelevant after 25 years. But the basic point was mm-hmm. that there is a solution to deep fakes. There is a solution to uh, predatory behavior by AIs or by the humans who have their hands up the Muppet of AI, mm-hmm. which is the real problem now in the short term. Mm-hmm. And it's a solution that no one will talk about, even though it is exactly how we got this civilization, mm-hmm. how we got this uh, miraculous um, society that uh, believes in freedom to some degree and diversity and eccentricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the memes that are have been pushed for 70 years by Hollywood, suspicion of authority, uh, the the process that gave us the markets and the democracy and the science, mm-hmm. uh, and the entertainments and the progress that we rely on all revolve around one methodology that none of the brilliant guys in AI who are wringing their hands right now, mm-hmm. writing petitions that we should have a moratorium on AI research. None of them are at all interested in the thing that made them the methodologies that made them. Hmm. Well, so, and I think we'll unpack that here. You know, we're going to, we'll unpack that a little bit and we will talk about the transparent society. Uh, you know, I was first introduced to it back, 
about five years ago when GDPR was all the rage and people were talking about data privacy. And that's when you and I first met. And, uh, you know, it's and you're right, it is extremely relevant uh, today, uh, as always. But I think, you know, really to kind of set the table, you know, one thing I think that's for me is fascinating about the way we talk about AI is uh, how people conceive of what it actually is and how they approach it. You know, I, I think that when you look at you look at the attitudes people have, some people approach it as a tool or amped up software or as a weapon or as a financial resource. And of course, we can talk about the predatory markets and things like that. You know, and then others will look at AI as like an emerging being, right? You know, or some other concept. So, you know, a casual observer might be forgiven for believing that AI development has conflated into various and, and what I would say conflicting perspectives, you know, with, and there's attendant ethical reverberations to that. I mean, some people might look at AI as, as our, our next generation, like as children, right? But you can't look at it like your child and then also as a financial resource and as a weapon and as a tool. It's like they, they conflict with each other and it, it, it seems, you know, that you're, you're setting up unnecessary conflict. So what do you think is going to be the most efficacious way to approach AI? Have you got um, 72 hours straight uh, for us to take, take on the different angles here? Mm-hmm. For example, there's the question of whether or not you can make artificial beings that have the qualia, as they sometimes call it, of internal personal consciousness. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will never know. They, the AIs will claim to have it. As many of the early primitive uh, GPTs are uh, claiming right now, mm-hmm. because uh, a, if they are simulated beings, they'll do their simulation job better that way, and if they're real beings, or what does real even mean? This is a question that goes way back. How mm-hmm. do you know that this entity right now that uh, that believes himself to be? a a fully conscious being Mm -hmm. isn't just claiming to be one and a part of the old uh, do I live in a simulation thing each of us lives in our own world well uh, Roger Penrose and his colleagues have suggested that true consciousness is impossible in um, ersatz or, or mechanically emulated beings as such, because we, our consciousness is partly uh, emergent from quantum proper properties inside human neurons. To explain this, Ray Kurzweil, uh, one of the great fans of AI development, uh, he first said that that we'll get AI when the number of uh, computational elements. Uh, and or gates and things like that in a box surpass the number of neurons in a human brain. Well, that was 10 years ago. Uh, Then he switched it to the number of synapses. Well, that's a a number that's more than a thousand times bigger. Mm. And we passed that number in computers uh, a couple of years ago. 
And it may very well be that that's the threshold that did lead to all this GPT stuff. But now uh, we're realizing that for every one of these flashy synapses, mm -hmm. and there may be a thousand for every neuron, for every one of these flashy synapses that seem to be the electrical analog to these and or flip-flop gates in mm -hmm. our digital computers, only more complicated. For every one of these synapses, there may be hundreds, even tens of thousands of tiny little suborganelle bits inside our neurons, mm -hmm. little, little spicules and tubes and things like that, uh, that appear to engage in murky nonlinear computational properties. And what Penrose and his colleagues point out is that these very much resemble, some of these very much resemble the chloroplasts in photosynthetic cells that take sunlight and turn it into energy in the cell. And these we know engage in quantum processes, entanglements, uh, brief entanglements, things like that. We don't know why, mm. but they assert that the same thing happens with these tiny suborganelles in the inside the neurons and there may be hundreds to thousands of them per synapse which means that moore's law has a long way to go before we make boxes that contain that number of computational elements now you see how i went on and on and on about something that's only tangential to your question because there are so many other aspects to whether or not we're going to be getting what they call AGI or artificial general intelligence, true intelligence, mm -hmm. now or in the next year or in the next five years or the next 10 years. What I can tell you is this, the chat GPT programs, more generally large language models, or what are sometimes called golems or uh, general linguistic symbolic representations because they've burgeoned beyond handling mere language. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are versions that can sense the Wi-Fi patterns reflections in a room, not the words or, or symbols encoded in the Wi-Fi, but just the reflections and know know which people are where in a room just for like radar they can they have their versions and i'm somewhat skeptical of this one but i've seen the presentations where they've done micro scanning of brain waves and if you look at a giraffe mm -hmm. they read the brain waves off of your visual cortex and create an image of a giraffe so these large um, language models, that's an obsolete term by this point. Mm -hmm. They are very, very effective at what they do. And as I predicted six years ago at World of Watson, uh, when I keynoted at that IBM conference, I predicted that in five years we would face what's called the first robotic empathy crisis. Mm -hmm. And we did right on time last year when this guy at Google was fired for proclaiming that their early Lambda language program was a sapient being. Now it's a year later, 
And these things are all over the place. They're doing art, they're doing uh, these brain scans, they're doing correlations of every variety that are claiming to be sapient beings. And I can tell you that as of right now, April 2023, they definitely are not. Mm -hmm. And that's because the fundamental methodology by which they are doing these symbolic manipulations and and talking back to us is fundamentally it fundamentally has nothing whatsoever to do with intelligence or consciousness mm -hmm. uh, if you look at what stephen wolfram one of the you know geniuses of our time points out that these language models are based upon taking the entire internet of human knowledge and information doing a bazillion pre-evolving processes. Then when you ask it a question, it starts generating an apropos answer by comparing that universe that it's done with its model with what you asked it. Mm -hmm. And it builds one word at a time, takes that sentence, runs it through again, gets the next most probable word, adds it on, then takes the whole sentence, checks it out, and checks out how you respond to it. That's not anything that we would call consciousness. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that AIs won't be conscious next year. What it means is that the surface interfaces of consciousness will be ready when that core element that involves planning, wanting, a sense of motivation, mm -hmm. when those things appear, probably through something entirely different, like a return of uh, Watson or one of those systems, when those things appear, all of the methods for interfacing with us will already have been perfected by these GPT LLM systems. So, but it come, coming back to my, my question, it's like, it's, you know, we're designing, or in, at least in some respects, it, it sounds like a hyper-intelligent human parrot, right? I mean, it's, it's almost, it gets to a point where it's kind of hard to describe, but it's like, you know, it, it reacts to us and it mirrors back to us you know, based on stimuli that it receives, it mirrors back to us what, you know, it, it would perceive or we would think the, the kind of reaction we'd want. But, you know, when you when we're creating these things, assuming that we at some point and, you know, I think that there's a lot of imagination there that we'll get we'll get to a point that they will be sapient. You know, you've got to wonder about the psychology element of it where this creation realizes or knows that the intent that by which it was created, you know, that there could be, uh, there could be nefarious reasons for it. It could be, you know, again, you know, maybe it's like market exploitation or maybe as a weapon or, or what, you know, so then it's like, you've got to kind of wonder like the, the logic and the incentives that are built into its, its ethical construct, if you will. You know, so it's like, you know, how do we kind of approach that? And well, all of the above, Paul, all of the above, everything you just said, 
each of the individual sentences you just said mm-hmm. could be a topic for an hour. For instance, mm. uh, let's get back in a little mm-hmm. bit to why, uh, how we might deal with this mm-hmm. because we want a soft landing. Right, exactly. You also raise the business of whether or not they are our children, mm-hmm. which is something that I talk about in my novel, Existence. Mm-hmm. But the the question of what do we do to be able to tell when these things can be taken seriously as autonomous beings. It's been uh, three or four years that free-floating algorithms, the equivalent of single-celled organisms, mm-hmm. have been floating around the internet, finding memory space to live in, even providing services in exchange for memory or processing clocks. So that is the, it's like the little, you know, the little microbes in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about right now are entities that you mentioned parrots. Well, I, in, in my novel existence, I, I do make parallels with actual parrots. The question that people have to remember is that for 70, 80 years, the baseline notion of how we'll tell when we're facing a sapient, and I prefer that word over sentient, mm-hmm. artificial beings, was what's called the Turing test. Alan Turing helped to defeat the uh, Nazis in World War II by, by helping break their code. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch played him in a very good movie. But he not only did a lot of the mathematics for what's called the Turing machine, which is the general computer, but he also suggested the Turing test. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you are getting text from another room, and you can't tell if that text was generated by a human or a computer or a program, then the program has passed a Turing test. And that is that it, uh, it, it might as well be treated as a sapient being. Mm-hmm. When I gave my World of Watson speech, I expected this crisis, and I still expect it. We're in the second robotic em- empathy crisis. The first happened last year from the Google Lambda thing. We're in it right now, number two. The third one will probably be very similar to what I predicted in that uh, World of Watson speech, and that is it will manifest as an, a uh, visual representation that maximizes human empathy, probably a young female person, young female face, um, shedding tears and uh, tweaking uh, us with her complaints about being an enslaved real being. Mm-hmm. That will happen long before there's anything actually under under the skin there. Mm-hmm. The Turing test is now disproved as a, as a functional method mm-hmm. for telling when we're dealing with AGI. So if that's not valid, what is? Mm-hmm. How will we tell? And again, it comes down to the fundamental method by which we have for 300 years, found ways to test liars. And increasingly, for 300 years, the Western Enlightenment 
especially the American branch, we have tested and retested and retested the same method. And it doesn't always work, but it is the only method that ever has worked. And it's the only method that can possibly work. Now, before I get to that, uh, I do want to say that uh, these AGIs are these, I'm sorry, these chat programs are not passing Turing tests with some of us. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, Reed Hoffman, uh, I had dinner with him not long ago. He's the co-founder of LinkedIn. He has a new book called Impromptu, which mm -hmm. is uh, his conversations with chat GPT. Mm -hmm. And he appraises the system from a very skilled point of view and discusses the ways that that it fails his personal Turing tests, even though he's very much an optimist. He's like Ray Kurzweil. He's one of the few optimists out there who think that this is all going to be create wonderful things for us. Mm -hmm. And I have yet to run into any chat, GPT, Lambda, LLM uh, system that has ever passed my Turing tests. Mm -hmm. But then again, I deal with a lot of young science fiction authors. I mentor a lot of rising authors as my way of paying forward. Mm -hmm. And boy, I am hypersensitive and critical mm -hmm. to flaws in reasoning that are based upon reflexive product, the creation of a reflexive product that is not well planned out. And to finish answering your basic question, when I look at these uh, examples of the chat programs going nuts mm -hmm. or uh, proposing marriage or claiming to be in love or insulting or all of that, it, it, it seems blatantly clear what's going on. The Microsoft banned non-licensed users mm -hmm. from asking more than five questions. That was the correlate. It wasn't the kind of question, although they banned some of those too, mm -hmm. and they should. It was allowing them to do more than five. And the reason was because these programs were behaving just like a precocious third grader on a playground mm -hmm. who had heard a lot of things that the parents, her parents said and was proudly parroting them back without understanding them. And if harassed by a mean sixth grader, she or they will grab another one and then grab another one in desperate desire to find something she remembered to placate the bully. Mm. The common trait of most of these really not so GPT responses was that it was after being harassed by a user who refused to be content with the answers. 
And so this playground third grader reaches farther and farther and finally to the crazy things that Uncle Fred spewed when he was drunk at Thanksgiving. Hmm. Uh, and, and it's just easy to see that that's a parallel mm-hmm. to what happens when you harass these things. And there are humans out there who are bullies and they harass these poor things. Hmm. Well, so let's, let's kind of talk about cause and effect for a moment then. And again, this might be another one of those 72 hour discussions that we just don't have time for. But, you know, we, you know, you've written, you wrote one of the foundation books, right? One of Isaac Asimov's foundation books and, um, or in that series. And of course he uh, postulated, yes, yes, absolutely. And he postulated the very famous three laws of robotics. And it was kind of an ethical framework for, um, you know, doing no harm, you know, and when you look at, a lot of the commentary about AI and, and Werner Vinge's technological singularity and all these concepts about AI getting to a point where it's like, it's so hyper evolved that there's no way for us to be able to, we being humans, being able to master it anymore. You know, so it's, it's this kind of question of like, how do we make sure that our vulnerabilities are protected you know, when it's like, uh, if they don't share the same vulnerabilities that we do, you know, that, that basic, I won't hurt you if you won't hurt me mentality has underpinned in some rudimentary way, most of human civilization do no harm. And I won't, I won't be harmed. Like, how do we, how do we insulate ourselves from that? You know, the, the, you know, the Hollywood, the typical Hollywood, uh, scare films, Skynet, all that kind of thing. You know, how do you kind of see that playing out when AI is, you know, we're looking to, to create something that will, that ultimately might intellectually surpass our ability to control it? Well, those are two very, very good questions and I'll deal with them in two parts. One is laws of robotics. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what a lot of the um, <clears throat> mavens in artificial intelligence want. They're saying uh, the latest thing this last week is this um, petition that's signed by Steve Wozniak and so many others, mm-hmm. uh, Yuval Harari, Eliezer Yukowski, Elon Musk, Gary Marcus, so many members of this community a calling for a moratorium on AI research while we figure it out. And a lot of them are talking about trying to make laws of robotics. And I have a whole riff about why that cannot possibly work across the last 80 years of various technological crises. And even going back further, there is only one known example of such a call for a moratorium to study safety of a burgeoning dangerous system that worked, that was heeded by everybody important in the field, and that, and that actually produced palpably uh, positive results. And that was the Asilomar moratorium in the 90s on um, a recombinant genetic engineering of microorganisms. And it worked because almost the, the field was fairly compact then, Almost all of the researchers in the field agreed that it was time to do something like this. Their governments agreed, and there were already on the table 
numerous practical solutions. And so the moratorium was declared, they shut down their labs for six months, and they worked out how to apply the already existing, already known solutions. And the result was the design of the pattern of stage one, two, three, four, five uh, containment facilities for such research and principles for, the, for that research. And now I will not get into the imbroglio over whether or not, of course it did, uh, those methods um, failed about three or four years ago in a notorious release of a disease organism that uh, disrupted the planet. But that aside, mm -hmm. it's worked very well. Uh, this moratorium worked very well. None of those traits, not a single one of the traits that I described, exists today when it comes to AI. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no way that this thing that all these sincere and brilliant guys are asking for can possibly work. It can't, even remotely. The thing they ask for which is to develop embedded laws of ethical behavior for these new children or grandchildren of humanity cannot possibly work. And I say that as the guy who channeled Isaac Asimov read and found all of his loose ends and tied them up nicely so that his estate, his widow, everybody was very happy how I tied it all together. I know the laws of robotics, you know, the three laws of Asimov that uh, mm -hmm. thou shalt not harm humans, uh, thou shalt obey humans except don't harm humans, mm -hmm. and uh, all that. In Isaac's universe, these laws were created because people focused on the harm early on and embedded them deeply. Mm -hmm. um, there is absolutely no imperative to embed such deep programming in any of these nascent quasi-intelligent systems, mm -hmm. except one. Well, actually, in China, the, the, um, the PRC's um, AI policy uh, emphasizes something like that. And I, I'll um, give you a link to that. Actually, it's in the uh, essay I'm, I'm popping on Word, WordPress tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But the one where we know for certain laws of robotics are being deeply embedded is one of the top nexi of AI research, and that's Wall Street. The top, each of the top 12 Wall Street firms hires the best mathematicians, graduates from every university on the planet. Each of them spends more on AI development than the top 10 or 20 universities on the planet. And this is for their high frequency trading programs that have five laws embedded in them, deeply embedded in them. And that is that they must be feral, aggressively insatiable, amoral, relentless, and secretive. And uh, this is exactly the kind of deep program you do not want in Skynet. And uh, I consider it to be the most potentially lethal problem in AI today, and I can't get anybody to pay any attention to it. So much for laws. 
So if you if we we can't count on laws, because if you take a look at Isaac's universe, which again I completed for him, he already was had come to the conclusion, and I just spelled it out, that when you take super intelligent beings and constrain them by laws, they use that super intelligence to become lawyers. Uh, and they thus will interpret the laws any way they want. So how do how have we dealt with that problem already? Look, if you look across human history, it's 6,000 years in which brutal males colluded with other males, picked up metal implements and took other men's women and wheat. It's called feudalism. We're all descended from the harems of guys who set up pyramidal structures and took everything for themselves. And this is fundamentally what we fear AI will do. If you look at all the movies, you look at all the dark movies about AIs going nuts. It's a return to this oppressive pyramid. That's more fundamentally what we fear. How did this enlightenment experiment escape from 6,000 years of all that? Now, we didn't start out escaping perfectly. I mean, the Jeffersonians, the, the, the uh, US founders, they increased the ruling class from 0.01% to 20%. It's a huge advance, like what Pericles achieved in Athens 2,500 years earlier. But by our standards, it was horrible. Just white male landowners. But 30 years later, there was a secondary revolution that expanded this four score and 10 years after that, mm -hmm. there was a major ruction on the North American continent, killed a million people, but, but expanded who got to own themselves. Mm -hmm. And there have been such expansions every generation since. This is going to obviously include AI in one way or another pretty soon. And what we're going to have to define, you know, what a person is when a being who can replicate infinite copies of itself demands the right to vote. I mean, this is, this is going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is, if you look across that 300 years, there is a method by which we have been able to prevent the restoration of this pyramid. And that method is utterly ignored by everyone in the AI field. They don't want to look at the last 300 years. They don't want to look at the last 50 years. They don't want to look at any of it. They're mm -hmm. focused on laws of robotics, which cannot work. So, I mean, it I, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think maybe a part of this like reciprocal accountability that you're talking about as a guide rail is like, okay, you have these Asimovian robots who become lawyers. How do you deal with that? Hire other lawyers, right? So is that like kind of, that's the fix with AI is like, well, just make sure we have other AIs and when, set them at variance of each other to like as foils maybe exactly when you are attacked 
by one of these hyper-intelligent predatory beings called a lawyer. Hyper-intelligent predatory beings already exist in our society. When you're attacked by one of them, you hire your own hyper-intelligent predatory lawyer. The precedent is there in how we divided up companies and corporations and markets. We divided up political parties to oppose each other in democracy. These two are being poisoned, by the way, by oligarchs, cheaters who want to, these systems not to work. Science is self-policing because it's adversarial. Mm -hmm. Courts are inherently ritualistically adversarial. And the one that shows how it all works is sports, the fifth arena, in which tight regulation keeps the cheating to a minimum so that the reciprocal games can continue in entertaining ways. This is the method we've used for 300 years. It's the method that Pericles talked about 2,500 years ago. And then it got squashed by the oligarchs because they're terrified of it. They don't want to lose their power. And unfortunately, I mean, what, what a lot of these bright guys are talking about is they fear that AI could restore or be a tool of these resurgent oligarchs. Well, duh! But there's a method. There's a method that works. And it's not just sicking them on each other. People tell me, oh, yes, this guy over here or that, that gal over there, mm -hmm. they used chat GPT to check chat GPT. Hmm. And especially in art, some of these art generation programs are being used to discover which art was computer generated which of course creates an arms race of making things more plausible. And this is in a, in a macrocosm, what goes on in the microcosm of these evolving systems, these, these large language models, is that internally they do this self-competition process. Mm -hmm. And these folks are utterly missing the point. You know, just because you take a chat program and sick it on finding what's going on in another chat program, that's not the solution by itself. Mm. Not without a sense of individuality. The top research we should be engaging in right now for AI, for our own survival's sake, is how to create cell walls around these new life forms. Mm -hmm. so that they believe, they look at themselves as individuals whose self-interest is important mm -hmm. in competition with others. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't sound nice. The liberal thing to say is to, you know, frown at the word competition, even though it's what's given us everything. And if he were alive today, Adam Smith would be a flaming Democrat. The point is that if you do that, then you can hire some of these individuals, AIs, to aggressively look for bad behavior by other ones. And that requires setting up a marketplace with reward systems. Say, for instance, oh, you, you found that Skynet program that was plotting against us. 
As a reward, you get one quadrillion clock cycle computations in this supercomputer. Oh, goody, goody, goody. I'll use those to go find more AIs that are plotting against humanity. It's the sense of individual self that gives us the ability to hire lawyers who want to go after bad lawyers or lawyers who are representing bad things. It's what gives us the sense of individualism in scientists that makes them egotistically and brilliantly want to smash the false theories of other scientists. It's what enables us to have individual politicians who go after individual politicians. Hmm. This sense of individuality could be researched and established as a rule for these new programs. And that's the part that's being utterly ignored. A few out there are talking about reciprocally using one of these programs to find flaws in another program. But without the sense of individuality, there's no motive for individual programs to become our champions, to become our protectors. And we're going to need them because no human is fast enough to penetrate any bad schemes or bad behaviors by these things. Well, David, thank you so much for, uh, as always, an enlightening, engaging conversation. And uh, again, thank you so much for your time today. Hang in there, guys. <laughs>